1: This year, build your credit history with the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card. No credit checks to apply. Get started at chime.com/build. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA, members of FDIC. Chime checking account and 200 qualifying direct deposit required to apply.
0: This episode of Into the Night was made possible by the unwavering support of our dedicated Patreon donors. Their generosity allows us to delve deeper into the mysteries that await us in the dark world of Finance and Freddy's. If you are captivated by the secrets we unveil and wish to be part of our journey, we invite you to explore our Patreon page. By becoming a patron, you not only gain exclusive access to bonus content, behind-the-scenes insights, and special perks, but you also play a vital role in sustaining the future of this podcast. Visit the link provided in the description below to learn more and join our community of Avid night Explorers. Hello, and welcome to Into the Night, a Finance of Freddy's podcast. I am your host, Nick, and thank you for listening. In our previous episode, we delved into the first two games of the Finance of Freddy's series and explored the core plot lines they introduced. The crusk of the buckskin and the causation for so many future tragedies being the fatality that befalled five innocent children. During the heyday of Freddy Fazbear's Pizza, five innocent children were lured into a restaurant's hidden corners by an individual donning a yellow Fazbear Entertainment mascot costume. In those dim recesses, a chilling tragedy unfolded as the kids were brutally murdered and their bodies were never found as they were stowed away by the killer's first original victim, whom we slaughtered years ago. A child who somehow came back to life the vessel of a robot named the Marionette, who had the supernatural ability to give gifts and give life, allowing the murdered children to live on by letting their souls inhabit the animatronic characters they were once so fond of. Despite the feeble attempts by Fazbear Entertainment to manage the fallout, the incident, known as the Missing Children's Incident, otherwise known as the MCI, and the reputation of the unsanitary state the building was kept in, eventually led to the restaurant's closure with the close of 1993. The once prominent Fazbear brand, tarnished by dark memories, seemed destined to fade into obscurity. With the restaurant's closure, one might begin to ponder, what will happen to the animatronic characters, the spirits of the deceased children still bound to their mechanical forms, lingering on in the aftermath? And what of their killers? The man behind the slaughter. Does he remain posed for a sinister return, ready to inflict more suffering and agony upon the world? Concluding our inaugural arc in the series, we now turn into the third installment, marking the finale of the original trilogy. The Fazbear name, once a beacon of entertainment, has become a mere urban legend. In its place, a void of opportunity looms. An opportunity those driven by greed and bereft of moral scruples, those who prefer the shadows of the past to persist, rather than allowing them to fade away in peace, will unwittingly forge a breeding ground for haunting memories to resurface. This is Episode 3 of The Missing Children's Incident, Part 2. In the wake of Freddie Fazbear Pizza's closure and the presumed downfall of Fazbear Entertainment, the abandoned restaurant chain has slumbered in decay for decades. Now, 30 years after they have closed their doors, the tragedies that took place there become nothing more than rumors and obfuscated childhood memories to the people of Utah. An urban myth, a ghostly specter from the past, now conjured up through debates and shared stories. Yet, with time's passage, the boundary between reality and fantasy has blurred, lost in the shadows of unreliable memory. And in this twilight, as with all urban legends, there are those unburdened by scruples, eager to chase after a swift fortune. Local amusement park proprietors in Utah have patched a scheme to capitalize on the mystique of the defunct restaurant chain by launching their very own free Fazbear mystery Shack. With no corporate entity or copyright constraints to rein them in, they plan to introduce Fazbear Fright, the horror attraction, to the masses. Their mission is to revive the legend and make the experience as authentic as possible for patrons. To achieve this, they're embarking on an ambitious journey to recover any remnants that have survived the passage of time and the ravages of neglect. The legality of their methods in procuring these relics is shrouded in ambiguity, but when there are no property rights to wrestle with, can it truly be called theft? While this relic hunt yields some initial success, the pressure intensifies as they scour for a main attraction to anchor their haunted endeavor. But until that crucial discovery is unearthed, the amusement park forges ahead with constructing the attraction, drawing on remnants from abandoned sites, including the new Freddy Fazbear's pizzeria, as seen in FNAF 2. They even melded the technology from the 80s and 90s into the building's framework, striving to envelop visitors in the ambiance of the bygone eras. To elevate the horror experience, they even seek to hire someone who can embody the role that almost every single Fazbear story centers around. The Security Guard. Unfortunately for the amusement park, a willing night shift worker promptly steps into the scene just as the attraction is nearing its completion. When the <clears throat> night guard enters into the building to start his late night shift, he is immediately greeted with the sound of a nauseatingly sticky grime on his first step. Each subsequent step mirrors the disconcerting sensation of peeling a bandage off skin, as if the very floor were a sticky substance. It was probably fake. Probably. The building was brand new, and the repugnant black substance isn't confined to the floors alone, but daubed on the walls too, streaking downwards as if the walls themselves were bleeding. The lighting of the building was draped in a sallow green glow that cascaded throughout the building, with the exception of the entrance, which was only lit up by the red neon of the exit sign. The unhealthy lighting was spotlighted on various antique posters and broken arcade machines that littered the hallways of the building. Periodically, lifeless Amtrak figures appear in designated spots, or so it seems. In truth, these figures are akin to mannequins with vacant hollow suits and rudimentary body parts devoid of the intricate machinery beneath the surface. Along the way, the fake night guard passes by a chica head with spotlights on the floor, highlighting a cracked marionette mask pinned on the wall, as well as a small alcove where, further down the corridor, a recess holds a foxy head on display, while a coat-rack-style arrangement supports the fragment torso and head of Bonnie. The surreal march concluded at the attraction's exit, where Freddy Fazbear himself, at the very least his bisected husk, rested. The building's design was linear, which made sense. It was supposed to be a horror attraction, and thus they didn't want guests getting lost. As long as they picked a direction and followed it, they would get to either the entrance where they started, or the exit where the security office was located. The office was just as stained and blacked as every other part of the building, albeit with a few unique props and characteristics. The most prominent was the large wide window so those passing by could peek in and observe the night guard. Several older knickknacks that looked like to be from the earlier 80s decorated the office desk, which looked more like a wash basin for a food court than a security desk. The room also seemed to double as a storage space for the location. The room was crammed with assorted decorations and spare part components and cardboard boxes. One in particular, in the corner of the room, was overfilled with the plastic shells of the toy animatronics along with a sundry of knick-knacks such as paper plate ornaments and foxy's hook hand the only entrance into the office was beside the corpse of freddy nestled conveniently beside the attraction's exit there was another potential entry point though unconventional an open ventilation system positioned on the room's far side the observant night guard couldn't help but notice an unusual architectural quirk. Nearly all the vents lacked grates. Not only were these vents generously sized, but they also hugged the floor, rendering them comfortably accessible for a human to crawl through. A perplexing design flaw, perhaps a remnant of inspiration borrowed from Fazbear Entertainment's previous constructions, but then again, maybe there was a more practical rationale behind it. Could it have been a mechanism for jump-scare theatrics, with an animatronic prop lunging out of the vents? However, if that were the case, why, why would his office possess such an opening? After all, they wouldn't want to encourage customers to navigate the ventilation system. Right? As the night guard acclimated himself in his Fox office, nonchalantly brushing off the fake powder dust from the stained plastic computers the prehistoric phone in his office started to go off. The leader on the Relic Expedition, and the visionary behind the Fazbear Fright project, wanted to personally call him to express his gratitude for him taking the job, giving him some guidance for it, and updating him on the expedition's progress as it's going on. Now, similar to our enigmatic figure on the line from before, this character remains nameless within the game. Thankfully, the fan community at large has christened him phone dude and why was he given this nickname well
2: Uh, uh, right now the place is basically just you know flashing lights, and spooky props. Uh, I honestly thought we'd have more by now. Uh, we we'll don't have something really cool by next week, so we may have to suit you up in a furry suit and make you walk around saying boo. <laughs> uh, but you know, like I said, we're trying to track down a good lead right now. Uh, some guy who helped design one of the buildings says it was like an extra room that got boarded up.
0: Suffice to say, he is a fan favorite. Now, despite phone dudes express concerns about the lack of interesting objects, the construction of the Fazbear Fright Project has been going well so far. It serves as a rather faithful homage to Fazbear Entertainment's establishments of old, even as it embraces its newfound horror-centric direction. Remarkably, the office itself mirrors the time-worn security offices of Freddy Fazbear's legacy, outfitted the suite of security cameras and accessible maintenance controls. The fake night guard can even play audio tracks over the speakers, most notably the old audio tracks of Balloon Boy's lab. But not much happens in the night guards watch besides the boredom of watching over an empty haunted house. The night guard played around with his buttons and knobs and updated any systems he had to keep the building running smoothly. Yet beyond these sporadic tasks, little engaged him apart from the rhythmic passage of time. When 6am inevitably arrives, the night guard tidies up his station and departs for home. Gabriel could remember how long it had been since he had moved from his stage, unable to jerk his metal bones and rusted joints. It was already hard enough to make it through a single day before, seeing so many children horsing around and playing with such joy in their eyes, while their parents scooped them up in their loving embrace. But at least he could say he put a smile on another child's face. Now, the only song he could ever perform would be the harrowing silence to an audience of rats being stuck inside the suit. This tragic reminder of his happiest days being behind him. It's torture beyond anything he could have imagined. Every movement was unnatural, unfamiliar, and cold. It was starting to get harder and harder to recall elements of his past. Sometimes it was even a struggle to remember his name was Gabriel, and not Freddy Fazbear. familiar voice spoke from the darkness in the rooms it was directing him off the show stage he couldn't tell who the voice belonged to but he somehow knew it was one he could trust despite the battery in his chest being dead for as long as he could remember his suit began to emit a low hum as he took his first step on the stained tile floor The next night, the night guard takes a shortcut when he returns to his office, this time entering from the back. The moment he gets set up, he is greeted by a new call from Phone Dude.
2: Hey man, okay, I have some awesome news for you. First of all, we found some vintage audio training gazettes.
0: the camera and deftly cycling through the various feeds, the night guard's persistent scrolling led to the discovery of the real one. It appeared to be a decomposing rabbit animatronic. A decaying robot was lying on the ground, yet somehow was still active. He watched as the creature struggled to its feet, its movements a grotesque parody of life. The signs of age and neglect were all too evident. Its external casing bore the scars of wear and tear, its wires and endoskeletal framework exposed in places. The suit's original colors had faded into a dismal palette of dark green and faded yellow, and one of its floppy ears hung on by a thread. The ravages of time had taken their toll on the robot's head as well, locking it in a sinister permanent grin. Yet, the term robot felt insufficient to describe the creature. As the night guard observed the rabbit's awkward movements around the attraction, a pre-recorded train tape began playing over the phone, courtesy of Phone Dude. The audio was attended for employees wearing mascot costumes, akin to the characters found in places like Disney World. However, what truly caught the night guard's attention was the voice that accompanied the training instructions, a voice that resonated with the familiar, albeit eerily youthful, tone of a Fazbear hello. employee? Oh, hello. hello. Uh, welcome to your new career as a
1: performer slash entertainer for Freddy Fazbear's Pizza. Uh, these tapes will provide you with much-needed information on how to handle slash climb into slash climb out of mascot costumes. Right now, we have two specially designed suits that double as both animatronic and suits. So please pay close attention while learning how to operate these suits as accidents, slash injuries, slash death, slash irreparable and grotesque maiming can occur. First, First we'll discuss how to operate the mascots when they are in animatronic form. For ease of operation, animatronics are set to turn and walk towards sound to It's an easy and hands-free approach to making sure the animatronics stay where the children are for maximum entertainment slash crowdsourcing value. To change the animatronics to suit mode, insert and turn firmly the hand crank provided by the manufacturer. Turning the crank will recoil and compress the animatronic parts around the sides of the suit, providing room to climb inside. Please make sure the spring locks are fastened tight to ensure the animatronic devices remain fixed. We will cover this in more detail in tomorrow's session. Remember to smile are the face of Ray Fazbear's people.
0: Diving deeper into the annals of Fazbear Entertainment's history, during their early days, they had used a form of hybrid animatronic model that's hinted to date all the way back to the company's origin at Fredbear's Family Diner. These animatronics, known as Springlock suits or Springlock animatronics, were capable of being worn by humans. They resembled their fully robotic counterparts, though these suits featured a distinctive yellow hue and a simpler computer system. However, in line with Phasmid Entertainment's questionable design choices, the Springlock suits were far from well engineered and safely optimized. A grave danger lay within the Springlocks themselves. In various recorded messages, Phone Guy, the enigmatic voice of employee guidance, cautions that even the slightest trace of moisture could trigger the springlocks to snap back violently. Even the wearer's own breath could potentially lead to the animatronic endoskeleton impaling the unfortunate person inside. To protect himself from the springlock animatronic wandering around the building, the night guard utilized what he had learned from Phone Guy to his advantage. He recalled from the previous call with Phone Dude that the PR system in the building was set up both to unnerve visitors and guide them through the attraction. And among these audio snippets was a recording of a laugh from a familiar little gremlin he recalled from
2: 1987.
0: Hello? Given that the Springlock animatronic was programmed to pursue sound adheres, the voice of a child, even a synthetic and bothersome one, easily captivated its attention. The night guard, aside from the occasional system restart, navigated the night without significant trouble, and when the clock striked at 6am, he left to get some shut-eye before he would have to head back into the next night, to continue his work. Tonight's episode is sponsored by Marvel Force. Marvel Strike Force is an incredible mobile game that lets you take command of your own team of your favorite Marvel superheroes and villains to take on interdimensional threats like Dr. Doom and Apocalypse in an action-packed, turn-based squad-tactic RPG extravaganza. Embark on an extensive campaign, Completing challenging missions as you fight your way through the expansive Marvel Universe. Collect valuable loot, enhance the powers of your favorite characters, and level up to acquire new gear. Unlock formidable attacks and abilities, and customize your characters with costumes inspired by their most infamous storylines. Christoph! Did that get your attention? As we speak, Marvel Strike Force is celebrating its 6 year anniversary. But here's the real kicker. New users signing up through our link and using the promo code MAXPOOL. Get an exclusive treat. You'll instantly add the Merc with the Mouth Deadpool to your roster, complete with character shards and anniversary diamond orb and gear. Also, please note that these sponsorships help support the production and the hours we put into creating content for you. So downloading this game using the link in the description and giving it a try would help out this podcast immensely. The game is free, and using the code MAXPOOL gives you a ton of free starting loot. So you got nothing but to gain for giving the game a try right now. Thank you once again to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Jeremy was standing in the dining area of his childhood sarcophagus or at the very least what was left of it. After the building was boarded up, plenty of thieves broke in to see what Fazbear Entertainment left behind. Maybe they assumed that, since Fazbear was bold enough to abandon them here, what other treasures could they have left behind? The first things taken were all the merchandise, the toys, the blush dolls and prizes he used to spend all his day here trying to earn. After that was the heavier loads, the tables, chairs, some computers, silverware, and even some kitchen appliances. Strangely enough, they were always left alone. He and his friends would sometimes get stared at with these somber looks, and occasionally, if there was a group of intruders, one of them would poke and prod his friends, but then someone would tell them to cut it out, to at least have some respect. German knew they were talking about him and his friends, but he never believed they knew they were still here. If they just took a closer look, they could see him. The real him. The boy whose body he used to reside in. The boy whose body he now mangles every time he twists and turns in his metal casket. The voice spoke again. You could feel the presence of a hand begging him forward from the shadows. He was trying to get him to leave the room. Ghirio followed him whenever he was begging him to go for a few hours. But he never came back. There had to be some reason. But he couldn't tell the entity's intentions. But he was compelled to follow. He knew it was what he had to do. Jeremy gave his motor a quick push, which caused his bunny ears to twitch for just a moment, following whatever the voice
2: took him.
1: Not ruin the customer experience. As always, if there is ever an emergency, please go to the designated safe room. Every location is built with one extra room that is not included in the digital map layouts program, animatronics, or security team. This room is hidden to customers, invisible to animatronics, and is always off camera. As always, remember to smile. You are the face of Freddy Fazbear's.
0: As the night guard expertly maneuvered the spring bonding animatronic around the facility, an odd, creaking sound emerged from the ventilation units. Tonight, there was no call from Phone Dude to check on him. But, considering the ventilation problems mentioned in his calls before, the night guard couldn't completely brush off the possibility of its effects. While he initially dismissed the idea that poor airflow could affect him in the manner Phone Dude had described, Our fake night guard quickly realized that his perception of reality was starting to slowly waver. In a fleeting instance, he believed he saw Freddy limping across the hallway in plain view. However, the moment his gaze shifted to the glass pane, Freddy was no longer there. Similarly, he thought he glimpsed the mangle crawling across the ceiling above the foxy head alcove, and Chica's face seemed to be piercing the static of a broken arcade machine. Yet the most irrefutable proof of something amiss came when he switched the monitor displaying the spring lock suit. But the following feed was hijacked by the face of an eyeless Balloon Boy. Reacting swiftly, he swung aside the monitor to inspect the cardboard boxes where he had spotted the enragement child's head. Yet as the camera panel moved away, Balloon Boy stood before him, wearing a grotesque grin. The once vibrant colors of the animatronic were drained replaced by burn marks and smoky stains that concealed its sickly green hues, as if it had suffered from a plague. Before he could react, Balloon Boy lunged at him, arms outstretched as if to ensnare his face, its jaw unhinged unnaturally, extending far beyond its normal limits, resembling a snake's jaw ready to devour its prey whole. Hollow eye sockets were now filled with eerie, gray-white irises, it engulfed his vision, and amidst its otherworldly screams, his sight faded into white. Coffin was sputtering, the night guard gradually regained his senses. The blaring and lawn bells were overpowering, and the office was bathed in pulsating red light. He stumbled to the control panel, the ventilation unit clearly malfunctioning. Perhaps he had been hallucinating? The disconcerting sound of air rushing through the vents was as consistent as ever. Initiating a system reboot, six agonizing seconds passed before the alarms finally ceased their clamor. Unfortunately, the ring within his own head persisted, unaffected. Out of the corner of his eye, he caught a glimpse of a spring-lock animatron darting across the hallway. Swiftly, He had to return to the camera system to guide it towards the rear of the building. Hi. Susie was standing by the bathrooms. It was drawing her here, but the bathrooms were all boarded up. This was a dead end as far as she could see. Where is it trying to lead her? Where did it lead Jeremy or Gabriel? They never got back on their stage after it took them. The voice returned, and this time you can finally see who it belonged to. It looked like Gabriel, or, or more so, it looked like Freddy. But something was clearly wrong with it. The normal brown and tan fur was gone, and instead it was sheath of ethereal purple. Its jaw was crooked, and its eyes were filled with white irises. It wasn't Gabriel. It wasn't him. She didn't know what it was, but her feet moved on their own, or she just felt so entrenched that she couldn't just resist its influence. She couldn't tell which it was. She had to trust it. She had to let it lead her, despite the painful memories it invoked. She was powerless to stop Chica from dragging her wherever the shadow of Freddy beckoned.
1: Don't. After learning of an unfortunate incident at the sister location involving multiple and simultaneous spring lock failures, the company has deemed the suits temporarily unfit for employees. Safety is top priority at Freddy Fazbear's Pizza, which is why the classic suits are being retired to an appropriate location while being looked at by our technicians.
0: The storage location for these suits was the sealed room mentioned earlier by Phone Dude. By delving into Phone Guy's train tapes, we learned that this room held significance beyond mere storage. It functioned as an employee safe room. It was a space designated for emergencies, in addition to a spot where employees could don their spring lock suits. This room was unmonitored, and invisible to the cameras, and wasn't on the animatronic computers, so they couldn't enter into these rooms either. However. The night guard's focus wasn't on about the past his immediate concern was surviving against the springlock animatronic and the phantoms of the past that kept haunting him he didn't know if these were actual ghosts or if like in the fnaf 1 location the supernatural elements of the victims of the past have imprinted on the location causing the environment to fluctuate the toy animatronics also acted erratically prior to the second missing children's incident suggesting that their use of the parts from the withered animatronics to repair them might be what was responsible for their aberrant actions or perhaps these visions were products of his own mind born from the strain of impending danger and the dilapidated state of the maintenance facilities leading to hallucinations regardless of the explanation the night guard's hallucinations painted a vivid yet decrepit portrait of the animatronics each manifestation, like that lumbering spring bonnie suit in the corridors, had been stripped of its vibrancy. Strangely, these hallucinatory experiences shared a common trait. Despite their battered and fractured forms, they all bore the appearance of charred figures as though they had been engulfed in flames. Were these phantom animatronics genuinely echoes of the past? Or did they foretell a haunting glimpse into the future? Fritz couldn't believe what he was seeing, and despite the eye patch, he didn't think it was his eyes playing tricks on him either. Freddy, Bonnie, and Chica, no, Gabriel, Jeremy, and Susie. They were all pulled apart. Their heads and limbs were torn from their torsos. Their mechanical bodies ripped open and dissected, removing out various components and parts. He took a few steps forward. His friend's vessels were still mostly intact. But where were they? Shadow Freddy was standing right in front of him. It's back against the wall in the small corner of the abandoned Freddy Fazbear Pizza. He lured them all here. B- but why? It wasn't one of his friends. He knew who they were, and it was not one of them. Yet, at the same time, there was something about it that drew his mechanical body towards it. Shadow Freddy turned and began walking away. Right through the wall ahead of Fritz. He didn't understand. What was he supposed to do? It told him to follow him, but there was no way forward. This, this had to be a trap of some kind. It had to be. Fritz knew Foxy was pretty quick. He'd get away if he ran. He turned to sprint back to Pirate's Cove, but it was too late. His servos turned just in time to see him. the smiling man tackled him to the ground and started to yank and pull at the pressure points on his animatronic body. He told him limb from limb, joint from joint. Something was wrong. He couldn't fight back. He was at the mercy of a monster who had none. Once he pulled the leather of his mechanical casket, he could feel his soul touch the cold air. The purple man's smile grew ever so slightly wider.
2: It is not your flesh that sustains me. It is your fear.
1: Hello? Hello? Um, this is just a reminder of company policy concerning the safe room. The safe room is reserved for equipment and or other property not being currently used and as a backup safety location for employees only. This is not a break room. It should not be considered a place for employees to hide and or a congregate, and under no circumstance should a customer ever be taken into this room and out of the main show area. Management has also been made aware that the Spring Bonnie animatronics has been noticeably moved.
0: The night guard found himself increasingly caught in the grip of his hallucinations, which grew progressively more disordered and vivid. Now, the phantasmagorical visions included Foxy materializing out of thin air, the marionette sliding into his field of view, and even a sense of multiple iterations of that grinning rabbit appearing across the camera feeds, despite knowing that there was only one. The rabbit figure seemed to be gaining a touch of cunning, strategically utilizing the ventilation system to catch the night guard off-guard. Luckily, Phone Dude had incorporated cameras within the vents, complete with vent gates, He was totally planning on having people crawl through these. Luckily, Phone Dude's ridiculous and dangerous idea that would even make Fazbear Entertainment proud provided the night guard with a lifeline enabling him to persist. One more day was all he needed. A mere 24 hours. And he could finally sever his ties with this place forever. Just one more day. A singular hurdle separating him from liberation. (laughs) He had lured them all back again, back with familiar tricks. He couldn't just leave them alone, could he? even their current form he had to rob them all of the one thing that still gave them some level of joy he had to take away their happiest day he took them all and made them his puppets again he overpowered and dismantled them again and now he runs away and hides of the coward he is again but he knows where he is hiding the monster may not have realized what he had done but a soul not need bound by a vessel to still have a presence in the world of the living. He knew this more than any of them. He knew more than even their guardian angel who gave the others the gifts of life. He didn't need her gift though. He remained for his own reasons and his own drive and will. One of them being for that man in the shadows. For out of all his victims, he was the one he should not have killed (laughs) his spirit flowed through the abandoned pizzeria up until he came across the graveyard of his childhood cemetery the massacre discarded pieces of metal and dismantled animatronic scrap they never stood a chance they were beholden to their vessel whatever rules it plays by they must play by too they had no way of knowing the safe room ahead of them was there nor did they have any idea that he could be hiding there like a snake waiting to pounce on an unaware kitten. He walked through the open doorway into the safe room. He was there. He was tinkering on something in the corner, right next to some broken arcade cabinets and beside some boxes of Fazbear Entertainment advertisements. He was so proud of himself. How could he not? When you have nothing to give to this world, The only thing you can do is take away and tear down. What else is there for a degenerate to be proud of? The monster tilted his head up. He knew something was wrong. The air in the room had shifted. The smiling man turns toward him, and his smile, for the first time, finally frowned, and his confidence turned to panic. If he was alone, then maybe the snake wouldn't have been so afraid. But he wasn't. He could feel them behind him their anger, their hatred, their inability to let go. His friends Gabriel, Jeremy, Susie, and Fritz were standing behind his six, blocking the doorway so there would be no escape the smiling man began to start sweating and quickly got to his feet. He took a few steps towards the murderer, but the monster who masquerades as a man immediately backed away. Whenever he got to the edge of a wall, the monster would jump off it to gain some distance away before returning into a similar position, having to repeat the charade all over again. This would be the day, he thought. Justice would finally be served. But a moment of doubt hit him confident wicked smile of the monster he had seen all too much returned. The smiling man was looking behind him. He darted past him and went to the corner where he had originally been tinkering. There resting was his chosen chariot, the armor he adorned to pursue all his sinful goals. He put it on with the skill and quickness of a man who had done this a million times, the eyes of the amtrak lightly illuminating The smile of the yellow rabbit's face that once was charming had been made uncanny from his corruption. He stood up on his padded feet. The others looked defeated, as if they lost sight of where he had gone. Even to this day, they still couldn't see past his facade. He laughed maniacally at their misfortune. He had been victorious yet again. He'd be able to escape punishment yet again. But, his triumphant boast would cut short at the sound of a small click of metal. (laughs) Uh For in his rush to escape, he had made an irreversible error, he should have noticed, had he not been blinded by his ego. The spring locks in his suit, in combination of the rainwater leaking from the ceiling and the moisture of his breath from his maniacal laugh, had loosened them enough to snap back into place. His body was impaled at multiple points, blood was pouring from every orifice and opening of the suit. His legs grew weak, and the weight of jagged metal cutting through his bones forced him to slowly crumble to the ground. He was unable to support himself. Behind the stained carton teeth, the spirits could see his face. He was in shock. He was in indescribable pain. And he was afraid. So very, very afraid. Shaking in pain, in the middle of a pool of his own blood, the spirits of the children started to dissipate, seemingly satisfied that their death were finally avenged. The man behind the slaughter left to suffocate and bleed out in agony through the very same device he used to cause so much acne.
1: Uh, Hello, hello, Uh, this is just to inform all employees that due to budget restrictions mentioned safe rooms are being sealed at most locations, including this one. Work crews will be here most of the day today, constructing a false wall over the old door face. Nothing is being taken out beforehand, so if you left anything inside, then it's your own fault. Management also requests that this room not be mentioned to family, friends, or insurance representatives. Thanks again, and remember to smile. You are the face of Freddy Fazbear's
0: The night guard hadn't the time to pay attention to the words of the dead who had been put to rest. His attention was focused on those who defied the grave's quiet embrace. He had orchestrated everything meticulously, ensuring that it would trigger the moment he left for his shift, allowing him just enough time to escape. He wasn't overly concerned about being traced back to this act. After all, he had adopted a false identity for precisely this reason. Whoever takes on a job at Freddy's, while using their real name. The spring lock suit, that harbinger of doom, was in frenzied pursuit, its instincts rightfully sensing the imminent threat to its existence. Yet, it wouldn't find an opening. The night guard was no novice in this game of cat and mouse. Years of experience had bestowed upon him a mastery over the tactics of restless spirits. Once he figured out the tricks of one, the rest are easy to deal with. Even him. As the clock struck 6am, he systematically sealed all exits and abandoned the premises. Walking away from the park grounds, he could feel the heat slowly start to crawl on his back. Turning around to view his handiwork, he saw Fazbear Frights slowly being engulfed in a flame. He learned a while back that fire can cleanse an area and objects, releasing from it the unhappy memories, fear, negative emotions, and anything unnatural or agonizing that continues to foster in the world of the living. Hopefully, from these grounds, finally some old wounds the world can begin to heal. Someday, he thought, he would extend a token of gratitude to Phone Dude, a gesture of appreciation for a well-intentioned individual who sought to create something cool. A gift basket, perhaps? A small offering for someone who would get a kick out of it, and it wasn't like the park wouldn't be getting anything out of the work they put in. Amidst the debris that the fire spares, a few artifacts might survive. These remnants would be auctioned to the highest bidder, potentially garnering a few bucks. But the objects that anchored and tethered to the worst parts of the Fazbear Entertainment legacy would be destroyed, finally dissolving the continuing haunting of its grim past. Now, this description of events has been somewhat dramatized for your entertainment. For starters, with the exception of the victim who would go to possess Chica, whose name was Susie, we have never gotten a perspective of the missing children's incident victims while they were possessing the animatronics. Nor can we truly make an assumption for what they were feeling or why they trusted Ghostly Shadow Freddy, as that relationship is made somewhat unclear even after nine years. But to summarize, these are the events that transpired as shown in the games. In an abandoned Freddy Fazbear's Pizza location, where the original Fazbear band, the robots the MCI victims resided in, the purple guy returned to tear them apart limb from limb. His reasons for this are up to interpretations, but we do learn in later games, he became aware of his victims possessing the animatronics, and he may have been destroying them to discover what exactly allowed them to live on after death or to see if that would destroy the spirits. Whatever his intentions, this unintentionally resulted in the spirits becoming freed from their bonds and being led by the spirit of Golden Freddy, they were able to go on the offensive. The purple guy was startled by their sudden apparition and decided to don his spring bonnie suit in order to trick the kids into trusting him again. They are momentarily fooled again by his disguise but the rain in his laughter caused the Springlocks to snap and kill him, resulting in becoming his own Iron Maiden, a poetic death that forced him to endure the same pain he inflicted on his victims 10 times over. Hence, why in canon, his official name is Springtrap. In the year 2023, Fazbear Entertainment has been abandoned and amusement Park plans to capitalize on the mysteries it left behind by making a horror attraction out of it. This results in them coming across Springtrap after being informed of false walls in the building and place him in their attraction hoping it would become the main draw. The location would later catch on fire, with the police suspecting that the faulty wiring of the location, not an unlikely conclusion given the decades-old tech they implemented into the building, but it is heavily implied. That the Night Guard ended up setting the entire building on fire to reduce Springtrap and the Fazbear legacy down to ashes. The majority of this information comes to us in the form of the Death minigames, which return from FNAF 2. Now, unlike in FNAF 2, the Death minigames present in the third installment are separated into two distinct categories based on how you access this meta narrative. The first are minigames that activate at the end of every night and help tell the story of FNAF 3 that we weren't able to see from the night guard's perspective. At the end of the night shift, you will be given control of a different member of the Fazbear band, starting with Freddy, Bonnie, Chica, Foxy, and finally the spirit that inhabits Golden Freddy, in that order. You will be free to explore a decaying, low-resolution version of the original Freddy Fazbear's pizzeria. The very same pizzeria we see in the original Five Nights at Freddy's. The building, as I've stated, is in a state worse for wear, with water leaking from the ceiling from the pounding rainstorm surging outside and rats scurrying around the corners of the building. Some rooms have even been boarded up, others like the employee-only room have had all their equipment left to rot. While exploring, eventually each animatronic will encounter a purple shadowy version of Freddy. This shadow Freddy was a minor character present in Final Freddy's 2 that I didn't mention last episode, as the rarity and spontaneity of him appearing is. it's a quiet disconnect from the story of that game. Here, he takes a more prominent role of leading each animatronic around the now defunct pizzeria, eventually leading each animatronic to just outside the restroom hallway. In the original game, there is nothing to even indicate that there was something else here. However, Shadow Freddy's path leads to a room beyond the boarded restroom a room absent from the first game. As Shadow Freddy enters, any animatronic attempting to follow him hits an invisible barrier, triggering a glaring red error message in the corner, for despite all the supernatural power they possess, they are always restricted by whatever the robotic programming allows them to do. So if to the animatronics the room doesn't exist, to the souls possessing these suits, the room also does not exist. But as the animatronics make an attempt to escape, a jarring burst of static screeches out, and the Purple Guy descends from the room, violently dismantling any animatronic attempting to get away. This sequence is marked by a sorrowful and eerie tone, a poignant representation of the game's haunting undertones. The rest of the narrative plays out as I represented it. The Purple Guy gets spring locked, possesses the Spring Bonnet costume, and becomes spring trapped. Then, Fazer Entertainment comes and boards up the walls, leaving him to rot inside. Now why do they board up the walls? Well it's kind of confusing, but if you take into account all that happens, it can be summarized as such. The events that are taking place in the minigames are actually taking place before the events of FNAF 1 rather than afterwards as one would initially be led to believe. Once Fazbear Entertainment ploy with the toy robots failed, they had stated that they were trying to rebuild and restructure using the original animatronics as a base. But that wasn't the only old assets they were planning to refurbish. They were going to reopen again in 1993 using the same building in which the MCI had occurred.
2: Uh, that old red- well, it's kind of
0: left to ride for quite a while. There's also precedence for why they would still own the building as seen in future installments in the FNAf series. In the original novel trilogy, which, while it isn't canon as it's more of a what- if alternative timeline which certain events don't occur, it made a key point to showcase the public reputation of Fazbear Entertainment. In that novel, while the MCI had occurred ten years after the plot of the book takes place, The town in which Freddy Fazbear Pizza resided in, and subsequently abandoned at, could both not get anyone to buy the building to refurbish it, but even a mall complex being built on top of it was seemingly delayed as no one wanted to work there. And it is heavily hinted a reason for that was because people just felt an uncomfortable aura around the place that wouldn't go away. This uncomfortable aura is actually a key part of learning more of the science behind the supernatural magic of the series that while not something that is required to follow the story in the games we will eventually go over in much more detail in a later episode as well as the identity of the night guard and the purple guy both characters whose stories we can't just get into right now the main point i'm trying to orchestrate is the fact that no one willing to buy property in which its history includes children being murdered on the premises. Fazbear Entertainment probably couldn't sell it off to anyone and thus had to resort to boarding it up and keeping it on file. After all, Fazbear Entertainment doesn't seem like the kind of company willing to take any form of loss. Phone Guy's training tapes were clearly made during a time period in which spring lock suits were active, something we know wasn't the case during FNAF 2 or the original Five Nights at Freddy's, which leads to the obvious conclusion that he recorded them back in the early 1980s, when the original location was still active. After all, from how he describes it in FNAF 2, it seems like he is quite familiar with the location, as if he had worked there before. So, why was the false wall built over again for Five Nights at Freddy's 1? This is a theory, but given how Scott structured the orders of the tapes of FNAF 3, I think there is a hidden narrative answer we can discover through them. There is the obvious lore he is trying to get across. The springlock suits respond to sound cues, Uh, they are highly dangerous to those who wear them, and there is an employee safe room that used to be standard in all Fazbear owned buildings. But consider how he organized them and what he specifically calls out. While we eventually learn of the events in the very next game that caused the Spring Lock failures, which eventually led to Fastman Entertainment to stop using the Spring Lock suits, the symbolic Spring Lock failure Scott is trying to associate to the player is the one Purple Guy suffers from at the end of the game. This tape is followed by the next recording mentioning how no one should be lured into the back rooms and how they are invisible to animatronics, which helps give us the context needed to understand the Purple Guy's plan followed by a phone guy even mentioning, by name, that the Spring Bonnie suit has been moved and shouldn't be touched under any circumstance, linking Spring Bonnie to the safe room and the Spring Lock failure to this event. Yet, as the audience, we know that Purple Guy will use this suit for two different missing children's incidents in 1985 and 1987 respectfully. Why would Scott purposely have Phone Guy mention this if we know it's going to be moved locations anyway, especially since by 1987, it could have been in a safe room because Purple Guy got access to it in FNAF 2 for that particular MCI incident. Well coincidentally, just right after we discovered the identity of Springtrap and Purple Guy being one of the same, we hear Phone Guy on the 6th night mention how Fazbear Entertainment planned to board up the safe rooms. And how they don't want anyone to mention this, especially to any insurance representatives. Or, more accurately, anyone who may have to report to authorities. The story that Scott is subtly weaving through Phone Guy's tapes is that the construction workers who are refurbishing the building had discovered the aftermath and reported it to Fazbear Entertainment. Now, whether or not they knew who it was inside the suit, it probably didn't matter to them. They couldn't afford to be in the public limelight with another incident again. Luckily, they had the perfect solution to the problems right in front of them. They instructed their builders to recreate the false walls that used to be there beforehand and leave everything inside, take nothing out and literally bury the body and hide it so nobody could find it. Springtrap was behind the walls of Freddy's for over 30 years, possessed and locked away in a dark room where he couldn't move, trapped within his own thoughts. Which means, when Mike Schmidt took the job back in the original Finance Freddy's, he was there. Unbeknownst to everyone who played the game the first time, the man who had killed those children and stirred the nightmares to begin with, he was also there but just out of sight. Their error sealed away. There are a second set of Death mini games that tells a different side to the story, but one of equal importance. Upon finishing the game for your first time, you will be greeted with a still image of the original Fazbear gang's heads, all lit up with their eyes glowing. Sad eerie music plays, and faint text in the background states that what we have achieved is a bad ending. Okay, to quote the great scholar JonTron, What does that mean, dude? Something isn't right if the implication is that the children still linger even after their killer has been punished and is dead, right? Well, given how FNAF 1 turns out, that just might be the case. But there is potentially a happier ending we could achieve. The second set of mini-games are extremely well hidden, they require one to explore the west hallway during the end night death mini-games. The hallway contains vague instructions and clues that if a player is smart enough to solve, or just, you know, reads a guide online, can lead to a series of mini-games during the actual main gameplay of FNAF 3. Now if this sounds confusing, it's because it is, it's very clear that not one person was designed to accomplish this task, and that Scott was relying on his community that was beginning to foster from his past two installments to cooperate and work together to figure out the puzzle he has set upon them. I won't spend time on what exactly are the steps to accessing these minigames. Like I said, you can just watch a gameplay tutorial on YouTube for that. Trust me, you have a plentitude to choose from there. I, instead, want to talk about the implication of what the minigames are presenting Each minigame is essentially a series of events in which you can ignore the game it is initially presented to you, and instead discover glitches and bugs that were placed there on purpose to discover secrets. Exploring these bogged out areas usually lead to some form of disturbing entities, such as crying children surrounded by a shadowy tree, a silhouette of the marionette, tears flowing like waterfalls, or voids of Broken, ominous purple like another dimension. Eventually, if done correctly, you will be able to find one of the MCI victims crying by themselves in these various voids. Once you reach them, you can offer them a slice of cake, causing them for just a moment, find some form of comfort. In a backwards way, you the player are watching the children slowly being freed from the torment their killer has placed them in and beginning to move on. Only problem is, one is having difficulty. In the final mini game, titled Happiest Day, you play as a child wearing the mask of the puppet, passing by several children at a birthday party, each wearing a fruity colored mask. But walking at the end of the room, you find the fifth and last MCI child. While you can access this event at any time, The good ending can only be achieved once all other victims are appeased, as the other victims of the slaughter have to be there to comfort him as well. If they have also found peace, and once he is presented with a slice of cake, he too can find a small glimmer of happiness. Once this is done, the children, each one wearing the mask of the vessel in which they possess, dissipate their masks slowly fall to the ground, with exception to the marionettes, whose mask falls more gingerly and slowly compared to the others. The balloons above them rise as the spirits of the restless victims finally have moved on. The mascot costume heads no longer glowing with life. But... There is still some unfinished business, as Springtrap still remains. However, through what appears as divine karma, after the sixth Night of the Night Guard's watch, he discovers a newspaper article detailing the apparent destruction of the Fazbear Fright attraction. Quote, It burns. Fazbear Fright burns to the ground. A new local attraction based on the ancient pizzeria chain burns down overnight. Authorities have not ruled out foul play, but at the moment, it seems to have been caused by faulty wiring. Very little was found at the scene. The few items that were salvaged will be sold at public auction." Now, I presented the idea that the night guard was behind it, and there is a lot more evidence to suggest that nowadays. That is just one way of looking at the apparent destruction of Fazbear Fright. What am I talking about? You ask. Well, remember those phantom hallucinations that plagued the fake night guard? Well, the cause of their existence is unknown. The trigger for him to have these visions were usually through charred mirages or simply unexplainable moments. Like for Phantom Chica, an arcade machine turns on and displays her face, and then suddenly she's in the office. Well, there is also a trigger that exists for the Phantom Puppet with the trigger for the hallucination being the marionette standing upright in one of the Fazbear fight halls. Except, it is not a hallucination. The Phantom Puppet is, but the trigger is not. One can tell that by the fact it not only casts a shadow. But its reflection can be seen in the puddle of water right beneath it. Remember, in the Happiest Day game, all the children's masks fell, but the puppets stayed in the air for a little longer. The marionette was too at peace, but still had unfinished business it needed to take care of Spring Trap. Now, am I saying that the puppet burned down fast for fright? It's possible. But what we do know is that if it was the puppet's goal, it failed. For in the background of the newspaper article, if one brightens the image, they can see the singed remains of Springtrap, still active and alive. For no matter how many times he is burned, I always come back. Thus ends tonight's program of Into the Night. In our next episode, we will be covering the next installment in the series with *Finance of Freddy's 4, where we spin back the clock even further to 1983, 40 years before the events of FNAF 3, where we finally learn what caused those Springlock suits to be banned in the first place, as well as the origin for two of the most important characters in the series. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to stay updated, please consider subscribing, following, or sharing this podcast. It truly helps us broaden our reach. Consider following us on our Twitter, at Fazbear Podcasts, joining on our Discord, or supporting us on our Patreon or Merch Store using the various links in the description below. As always, I have been your host, Nick, and I would like to thank you all once again for listening. Have a good night my
1: rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durban Marshall credit card bill.
0: Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Albert's, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper.